Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rim, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. Well, if you're listening to this on Thursday and you're in England, you'll be waking up to new national lockdown restrictions. It's going to be a tough month, there's no doubt about it. Here at Horse and Hound, we'll be spending a lot of our week counting up how many pages of reports we'll be losing over the next month, working out what features we want to pull in to replace them, and how that jigsaw of paging all fits together. It's one of those processes which involves both being quite good at maths and having to have a big spreadsheet, and then also quite a lot of guesswork and instincts. So both an art and a science, I think, trying to work out how our magazine's going to uh, to be pulled together over the next month. But we're on the case and uh, Horse and Hound is not going away. We'll be there every Thursday for you in print, obviously all the time on the website and weekly with the podcast. This week on the podcast, we're bringing you an interview with Sam Roberts, who tells us why being a showing producer is still her dream job. I wake up every day thinking, am I really still doing this? This is this is so cool. I'm just as passionate as I was when I was, when I was a little kid. I haven't got bored of trotting circles and trying to win rosettes. <laughs> I'll also be joined by two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound news team to talk about the lockdown, the impact of COVID on charities, live streaming at Point to Points and fireworks. Last up, we have vet Helen Van Tool. Helen will be talking us through the reasons your horse might have a fat leg after a day's hunting. In my experience, I think check ligaments, suspensory bodies and also suspensory branch injuries would be the most common after a hunting, hunting day. So that's it from me. Buckle up your throat lash and let's get going. Hi and uh, welcome to this week's Horse and Hound guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor at Horse and Hound and this week we're delighted to be joined by top native pony producer Sam Roberts and Sam is also our guest columnist in this week's Horse and Hound so make sure you check that out. So thanks so much for joining us Sam, how are you? Hi there. I'm really good, really grateful for the opportunity to speak to Horse and Hound and put my views across. Perfect. So, so Sam, um, obviously due to the current situation, your season has been prematurely cut short a lot along with others. So usually you'd have just finished up at Horse of the Year show and you'd be well on with prepping your ponies for Olympia. So getting them fit, making sure their coats are looking right. So it's a long time to keep ponies going and, and running, isn't it, from Hoyes to to um, December. So how does it feel not to have that pressure this year? It's certainly a very strange one. I've been so fortunate to uh, have qualified for Olympia um, for the last 15 or 16 consecutive years. So it feels like a lifetime ago since I haven't been prepping for Olympia. Um, it's a long run from October to December, one which is full of ups and downs and trying to keep coats and stressing about weight and temperature and <laughs> snow and rain and keeping the ponies happy and and uh, giving them lots of variety to keep them fresh and looking fit and ready for for the big for the big one in just before christmas yeah and and you had one of your um first big uh, career victories at olympia and this was in 1998 with the welsh section b harwell wizard so so what was he like as a pony and can you just tell me a little bit about him of course yeah he i was so fortunate enough to to have him when i was 12 years old um and he was a 12-2 section b gelding that um we did to be honest we did everything with um I jumped him, I took him to Pony Club, I showed him. He won the Horse and Hound Search for the Star 
the year before in 1997. He won the final when it was at Royal oh. Windsor. Um, and I was fortunate enough to to be given the opportunity to to lease him the, in 1998. And I was I did first riddens and junior riddens <laughs> and M&M workers and Olympias. And like, like I say, I think the week the week before I took him to Pony Club. Um, you know, and jumped him and hacked him. We didn't have a school. We just rode him in the field, um, which is obviously quite challenging to prepare a pony and keep them fit enough. So we used to turn the car headlights on after school and <laughs> ride him. Or my mum used to pick me up in the lorry and we'd go off to a local indoor school to have a little practice and keep him going. He was uh, full of character and cheeky and I fell off him about as many times as I stayed <laughs> on him. <laughs> Um, but he was he was a once in a lifetime pony, and I was very very fortunate to to have him. Oh, brilliant! And so you won Olympia when you were when you were just twelve years old, which is incredible. And so was the competition quite different back then? Has there been any major changes? Yes, it it was it was quite different. Um, I'd never I'd never even been to Olympia to to watch. Only ever seen it on the TV. Um, so it was quite a surreal experience. Um, to to qualify in those days, you had to qualify at uh, you have to win your section and then go champion. Had a qualifier um, of which I had won at Royal Windsor in 1998 and gone reserve champion, which was amazing because um, in those days the M&M Championship got into the main ring in the floodlit and under the Windsor Castle, which was an amazing opportunity. It sort of tested our our partnership out, which yeah. was a really good start. Um, and then we went on to to win and go champion at MPS Area 24 Wessex, uh, which put us through through to the final. Um, and it was yeah, it was it was a, it was a magical experience. And he was he was he was a very forgiving pony because I can't <laughs> I can't imagine I was brilliant at that age and made lots of mistakes. But I like I say I did fall off him an awful lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> he used to whip round like there was no tomorrow. If he didn't like something, he'd just drop his shoulder and off I come. <laughs> usually in a water tray when we're jumping <laughs> oh god they do always say that the quirky ones are the best so Harwell Wizard was one of your first top ponies Sam and you've had so many others along the way can you recall any other early ponies who, who you've had um, who you can credit for helping you develop into the rider and, and show producer you are today oh absolutely I was very fortunate enough to um, have a half share in a Welsh section A that um, mm -hmm. we that was brought and in his first season he won five horse of the year show m m worker qualifiers um which is is pretty pretty good going for a novice pony um and he went on actually to win and then go champion at horse of the year show winning his class by five marks or something um which was amazing to take you know he was brought out of a railway carriage um in in wales where mandy birchall small brought him and um, she brought him back to her stud and we did a deal and we bought him and, and ran him for the whole season and, and, had, and had brilliant fun, but he was super, super successful as well. What was his name? He was called Kumbash Stel Dion. Oh, lovely. And he went on to go to Hoys with the family that we sold him to for about the, about the next five or six years in, in first riddens and open riddens as well, um, as obviously being a, a fabulous jumper. Um, I, yeah, I've been very lucky. I've had some some very very fabulous ponies and, that have given me some incredible memories. And you know, I've had 
Connemara Stallion for Henrietta Knight that went on to win Horse the Year Show and a and a very good Section B stallion called Milcroft Iskarok, who won at Horse the Year Show as a as a flat pony as a Welsh Section B, and also then uh, two years later he went back and won as a M&M working hunter oh, pony wow. as well. Um, he went to Olympia, who was best of breed at Olympia. He was a huge character and. We had a we had a turbulent time because the year he won Horsia Show on the flat, I'd broken my leg and he'd come back from a quite a serious in, injury and illness. So it was like a real fairy tale win that one. Um, and he was a very big personality. He used to jump out of everywhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, um, I managed to to get the ride on a pony called Bron Hulog Harvey, uh -huh. and he went on to win. At um, at Olympia, and more recently on uh, Moorview Prince Consort, who won Olympia just four years old. Wow, some some incredible ponies there. And just looking back to those early days, at what point did you kind of think this was something you could you could do for a job and make a career out of uh, showing? Oh, I was I was so fortunate. I was one of those mad keen kids that did, just did a bit of everything, lots of pony club, and just a general all round all round kid doing doing everything until I was about uh, nine or ten and then I got the opportunity to ride some show ponies um, for the Jago family and got absolutely hooked when I was ten. <laughs> on my on my tenth birthday I rode at Horse Year Show. It was just you know amazing to to ride at that show let alone on your birthday and <laughs> um, I broke my I broke my wrist the week before as well so that was a bit a bit chaotic, but I still rode there anyway. I was <laughs> nothing was going to stop that opportunity. Um, and and as I grew up, you know, I was very lucky to have some opportunities to ride some amazing ponies. And it was always the dream, like lots of like lots of little girls. All I want to do is ride ponies and go to shows all day, every day for the rest of my life. I had no idea when I was that young that actually I would be able to make it all the way as a job um and it's it, it took quite a lot it's taken a lot of hard work and a lot of mm -hmm. graft and a lot of time but I just kept keeping my head down working hard thinking maybe I'll give this a go maybe I'll give it a go so when I was about 16 when I'd finished my exams I left school I I went off for a bit to work at various yards to get lots of different experience because I'd only ever had experience of really doing it my my way and the way that I the way that I knew that I knew how which was to buy young ponies show them for a year or two and then sell them and buy again and sell them again because that was the only way I we could afford to do it we weren't you know we weren't and I, I never had a made pony or or one that had had been made by somebody else I always mm -hmm. had to you know have young ponies because that's the only way we could afford to do it like lots of people and so yeah when I was 16 I went off and did bits and pieces and came back and very fortunate, found a little yard and was determined to try to make a go of things. And to be honest, even to this day, I'm still surprised I can I can do it as a job now. I, <laughs> is, I'm very fortunate to literally still be living the dream. I, I wake up every day thinking, am I really still doing Aww. this? This is this is so cool. I'm just as passionate as I was when I was when I was a little kid. Haven't haven't got bored of trotting circles and trying to win rosettes. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. And just finally, Sam, there might be some aspiring young show producers out there listening. And just as one of the best in the business, can you just provide them with some with some top tips to help them make that step in their career? 
absolutely. The best way to learn is to get out there and watch and learn and ask questions from those people you aspire to and look up to. Watch videos, ask questions, go to the shows. Don't be afraid because we all have lots to learn. Nobody has the right answer. Horses are unpredictable animals and absolutely go out there and ask the people. I certainly go and ask other professionals their advice or what they would do and um, watch videos and, and be passionate. And if you're enthusiastic and determined, I'm sure you'll get there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Sam. It's been absolutely lovely to chat to you. And yeah, best of luck um, over winter. And we look forward to seeing you out next season. Brilliant. I look forward to it too. Thank you. I'm joined today by Horse and Hound senior news writer Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. Hello. And also our news writer, Becky Murray. Hi, Becky. Hi, Pippa. What have you guys been up to? Lucy, you were out reporting last week, weren't you? Yes, I went to Bellevue on Friday to watch the Grand Prix at their high profile show. So that was nice to get out and about while while we still could. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and who was on form at that show? Uh, Amy Woodhead had a fantastic show, actually. I think she won six of six big classes and she won the Grand Prix on Mount St. John Com Fairy Tale, who is just, she is the most beautiful horse I think I've ever seen. She, I mean, her face, her head looks like a Stubbs painting and yeah, the rest of her is so athletic. So that was, it was really exciting, actually. It's been a while since I've watched a Grand Prix in person and it was really, really exciting to see some really good combinations. I think there was, it was quite competitive across the whole show. So yeah. No, it was really great to be out. Good. Um, and what about you, Becky? What's happening with you? Well, I mentioned last week my mare Chloe has gone away for a couple of weeks education. So I've been getting some exciting videos of her progress. Um, she's due home towards the end of the month. So I've been getting a trainer organised and booking a saddler appointment and trying to find job posts that still fit, uh, hopefully ready for lots of winter riding. Excellent. Well, I managed to have a quick jump on Alfie at home on Saturday. I was meant to be going arena eventing this Sunday, but obviously with the new lockdown, it doesn't look like that's going to be happening. Um, that leads us on to the first news story that we're going to talk about this week. Obviously, on the day this podcast is released, Thursday the 5th of November, that is the day England goes into a new lockdown. We record this segment of the podcast on Tuesday and at this stage things are not fully confirmed but what are the prospects for equestrian sport Becky? Well so far the government guidance states that stables and riding centres must close. Um, British Equestrian's interim chief executive Ian Graham told us he can't see much hope for equestrian competition during this lockdown period. Um, British Equestrian will explore all the options to see what they can do and uh, the governing bodies are hoping to release discipline specific guidance once the government confirms what this lockdown means. Mm, but it doesn't doesn't seem too hopeful that we'll be continuing with any shows. It seems like we probably need to uh, belt in and buckle up for a month of, uh, of, of certainly no competitions and uh, and group training. Uh, things still to be fully confirmed there around what what can and can't happen. Um, and it, it is important that we state this is a lockdown specifically in England. Wales's fire break actually ends next week and Scotland is still working to a tiered system. What's the situation around equestrian activity in Scotland, Becky, with those different levels and tiers? being used? 
Well, like you said, the new tiered system that um, came into force just this week on the 1st of November, um, there are five different tiers across the different local authorities. Now, these tiers do bring different travel restrictions for adults, which Horse Scotland in guidance yesterday said will impact equestrian businesses. For example, those living in, say, a level three area are only permitted to travel around five miles in their own local authority and people should be minimising unnecessary journeys between the different levels. Mm, so that does sound like it's going to be fairly fairly prohibitive for people in Scotland as well in terms of, of going to any shows. And coming back to the English lockdown, we have had some guidance on what that means for hunting, haven't we? Yes, the hunting office contacted all packs on the 1st of November to say hunting activities should cease from the evening of the 4th. Um, hounds should be exercised in the kennels by hunt staff only and horses can continue to be exercised from the stables but only as part of their routine daily care. Okay and what about vets? Has the British Equine Veterinarian Association given any guidance to its members yet? Yes, Beaver is advising members to minimise travel and contact with others. Um, they really need to risk assess all procedures and sort of be COVID secure when they're working. But ambulatory and hospital work can still continue at the moment. Okay, well, thank you for that. We'll uh, we'll see what what develops with the with with guidance coming out in different areas over the next few days. But we're sticking with coronavirus and coming over to you, Lucy. You've been working on a story about how equestrian charities have been impacted by the pandemic. Can you lay out for us how charities have been hit? Yes, Pippa. It's been. It's been a really difficult time for them, actually, and that's why I wanted to look into this this week. And they've been hit in, in several, a number of ways, really. So there's first of all, there's the whole economic situation. Um, then, if we look specifically at the first lockdown, that really had a very real direct impact in terms of the centres had to close, uh, a lot of the charity shops had to close. It also meant that rehoming at that point had to stop. So not only were they stopping getting money in from a lot of things you know visitors charity shops uh, and things like that but it also meant that they couldn't rehome horses now obviously over the summer that that eased and they there were a lot of really creative ways actually that charities have been working in and it's been amazing to see just how they are pulling through these times and continuing to offer the support that is so needed um and so obviously when lockdown lifted, horses were able to be rehomed and there's been lots of virtual events going on. But as we are go looking again at this further restrictions coming in for this month for England, it is, it is quite a difficult time, particularly going into winter, which, as we know, is often quite a hard time anyway for, for welfare charities and organisations. Mm. And the amounts of money that charities are losing are absolutely huge in some cases, aren't they? It really is. And it's quite it's really sobering, actually, when you see it written out like that and, and what it means. And I have to say, I spoke to I spoke to a lot of charities, actually, and they were all so open and really, really engaged with with wanting to tell me what the impact has been and and what difference, you know, even just really small gestures, you know, buying Christmas cards, thinking of them when you're doing your Christmas shopping can make. But when we take when you see think places like Red Wings, which is one of the larger charities, their loss of income from their temporary closure of their visitor centres that they're estimating is over 250 grand. Uh, Bransby is 
which is up in Lincolnshire, is predicting their loss to be around 500 grand. And the Mayor and Foles Sanctuary in Devon, their loss of revenue just between March and June was around 160,000. So these are these are really big numbers and it's affecting not just little charities, but charities of all sizes and right down to Communities for Horses, which tells me that they're quite a small charity and the the economic impact it's having on them is they've been hit to the point that their salaried equine welfare officer role is at risk, which is obviously you know that's a, that's a huge thing and could have real really serious implications for the people that they work with and the horses they work with too mm. and is there any help available for these charities from the government or is that something that they're seeking yeah i mean there has been some a lots of used furlough schemes there's been some grants as well that we've heard of but I know Red Wings is one of the charities that is is joining its voice with others lobbying for more specific help for this sector too. It's it is a really tough time and I think it 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 certainly brought it home to me speaking to so many and looking at the figures and quite how that translates is to just it's not just you know they have been hit it's it's quite how how hard they've been hit and yet they're still it's amazing actually hearing how they are managing to carry on. For example Bransby up in Lincolnshire, they were t- telling me about how they've got two groups of people, so providing care for their horses. So if one group needs to to self isolate, then then they can. And just the way they're all working around it is is quite amazing, and it really really shows how much good there is in the world, especially when times really are hard. Mm. Well, great work done by by those charities and, uh, and and really tough times for them. On a more positive note, we are obviously waiting, as with all the sports, to find out what will happen with point-to-pointing over the next month as the new lockdown rules have firmed up. But in the meantime, we've had a couple of point-to-point meetings, haven't we? And there's an exciting development in terms of allowing fans to follow the sport this year. Yes, that's right. So while obviously there's no paying public at them at the moment and they are running it very much behind closed doors and with really strict COVID protocols. Uh, we've had we've seen live streams the first time, which I've watched them. The first meeting was uh, East Devon, which was last Saturday. And then we had the Lebury at Maysmore as well. And both of those on the opening weekend were live streamed. And it was brilliant. I can't, it was, it was really, really nice to see. It wasn't just a coverage of the races. They had, it had presenters and it was all, it was packaged up like a TV program. So it was, it was fantastic. It's been really popular as well. Mm, that sounds like a, a real positive and something hopefully that pointing can keep the momentum up on whether that's this month or, or if it has to wait and sort of restart in December. Yeah, absolutely. And we are, I mean, we're still waiting. The latest we had, we're recording this on Tuesday, is that it's they're still awaiting news of whether they can continue or not before they put out a statement. But looking at the viewer numbers, it's been really positive as well in terms of that. So um, the Devon and Cornwall, which was hosted by Cornelius Lysert and Lizzie Kelly, they drew more than 18,000 viewers with an average viewing time for that core 4,000 odd 700 odd viewers which was around 28 minutes and then Lebri again was hosted by Cornelius and they had more than 7,000 viewers and a peak audience of around 850 so it's really it's really good numbers and of course we've just had the Kimblewick at Kimble on Sunday which again was really well supported in terms of horses and riders from across the sport which was fantastic to see and they got their live stream up and going in the week sort of days ahead and it was hosted on Sunday by Luke Harvey and yeah again it was just it was brilliant to watch and fantastic to be able to to keep that connection with the sport from even though we can't all be there at the moment. 
Mm, that's great. Thank you, Lucy. Becky, finally, I'm coming back to you and we're going to talk about fireworks. Obviously, the 5th of November is now England National Lockdown Day, but it's more traditionally known as Bonfire Night, Guy Fawkes, Sparklers, all of that. And it's a time of year that can be quite worrying for horse owners. You know, horses are really often frightened by the loud noises associated by fireworks and can incur quite serious injuries. And there are particular concerns about how Fireworks Night might look this year. Tell us a little about that. Well, this year, the the real concern is with public displays being cancelled, that more people are going to be having those small displays at home. So the worry is, you know, we might see more incidents. Um, the past few years, I've spoken to owners whose horses have been injured or worse. And so I think it's a topic that continues to be a real worry and even more so this year. And particularly those sort of home displays happening at different times. This could be something that becomes, I guess, quite spread out, maybe even not just over over one day this year. But there are a couple of positive steps happening around fireworks, aren't there? That's right. Um, The Office for Product Safety and Standards launched a new campaign providing tips on using fireworks safely. And they do specifically mention animals in their guidance, which is definitely good to see. And the British Horse Society, which is supporting that campaign, is encouraging owners to report any firework incidents to the BHS Incidents website to allow them to sort of keep gathering that data and use towards these campaigns. And now there was a fireworks debate um, this week at Parliament discussing calls to ban the sale of fireworks to the public. So we are gathering the information on how this went and getting some reaction from the welfare charities to this debate. So I hope we'll be able to report on that soon. Tricky times for horse owners in, in so many different ways. But thank you both for joining me today, Lucy and Becky, and to bring our listeners all the week's news. So it's over now to Helen Van Tool. We grabbed a few minutes with Helen as she was heading off to see a client. Helen's practice, VT Vets, is based at Kirtlington outside Bista and she hunts in that area, but also with Pax in Dorset, where she's a former joint master of the South Dorset. Over to you, Helen. When I get a phone call, normally on a Sunday morning, uh, someone's just come in to feed their hunters, having had a lovely Saturday, and they have found their favourite hunter with a big fat leg. Now they're very diligent most people and they tend to check their horses after hunting so it's unlikely that they've got a thorn penetration particularly into a joint because they would have already had lameness last night when they were changing rugs. So the common hunting injuries and the common reasons for having a large fat leg the morning after a lovely day out. I think the fundamental one is just brutal old mud fever that you know we're not always aware of what has been sprayed on the paddocks and if you merrily canter across a a paddock with effluent, spread it all over it. If you have any form of mud fever or any cracks in the skin, that will uh, allow the bacteria into the leg and the whole leg will blow up and you'll have a big fat leg. That can be not that bad by the morning, but by the following evening can be big and hot and will probably need intravenous antibiotics to control. So having checked the horse the night before and finding the large fat leg the next morning, it can be quite common to find partial amounts of thorns or wool scrapes on the horse's legs. So these thorns haven't gone into a joint, so they're not gone into a synovial structure, be it joint or tendon sheath, but they are under the skin and the blackthorn toxin will cause swelling and lameness even when not near a joint. 
I think these are generally seen by the vet. I think it's nice for us to be able to work out where those thorns are and that they aren't traveling through under the skin um, and going into synovial structures. The other common reasons for seeing a large fat leg the morning after hunting are the general lower limb injuries. Predominantly, I would see a lot of check ligament injuries, particularly when we like hunting through the edge of plowed paddocks and with very uneven and varying ground conditions, even cantering across grass, ridge and furrow changes the quality of the footing from, it can be dry on top of the ridges and then it can be very boggy in the furrows. Sudden changes of ground condition and heavy ground tend to lead to check ligament injuries. We also see a large number of suspensory body injuries on the hunters, particularly the older horses. So it tends to be that when we have a suspensory body injury, it's quite severe. And this can cause a swelling on the lower leg, similar to having an infected leg. I think it's very important to ask the person riding the horse, how much have they done? I think it helps the vet determine whether it's an infected leg or whether they need to be coming back in with a scanner in a few days time once the swelling's resolved to see if we've got suspensory body injury. We do also see post-hunting all manner of other injuries to the lower limb um, but in my experience I think check ligaments, suspensory bodies and also suspensory branch injuries would be the most common after a hunting hunting day. Thank you Helen. Next week we'll be back with vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equide to talk about colic and we'll have a very special guest for you when we're joined by British dressage superstar Carl Hester. In the meantime, stay safe, stay home, and do rate, review, and share the podcast to help us spread the word. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.